So you've had time now to, to uh, turn or scroll to Matthew chapter 7. Last week, we asked these two pivotal questions. First one, is truth absolute? Does it matter what you believe? Does it matter what you base your life upon? Is there someone's opinion that matters more than yours? Someone's opinion. And is it logical or is it something we should expect that a confession of faith will show up in the life of those who make that confession? As we come to the climax of this inaugural teaching and sermon of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has made very clear his end goal. And this is something I've hinted at as we have walked our way through this passage. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful, in many ways, a beautiful exposition of the heart of God. Of the heart of the law and the prophets. What God was after all along. There are many very memorable statements that are made in Jesus' teaching. I doubt there's any of us who are not familiar with the golden rule. Treat others as you'd like to be treated yourself. It's very simple. The problem is, for many of us, for many people, we make that the end goal. We make that the summation of the Sermon on the Mount, but it doesn't end at the golden rule. He's not merely showing us a good way to live. He's actually showing us through his exposition of the law, that you and I can't live the way that we should without him. He's showing us our need for a savior. And he's also showing us extremely clearly that there is more to life than this life. The summation of Christian doctrine, of Christian teaching, is not to live the best that you can, treat everybody nicely, and then retire to the grave. Not at all. It's a big part of it. Live well, love well. But all of that is within a context, and the context is how he will begin, as you say, to land the plane, to close out this sermon. Each of us, individually, we're playing to eternity, to an audience of one. The golden rule matters, but it's not the end game. Thus far, as Jesus has begun to wind his teaching down, he has been very clear and very explicit on two things. The first one is this. In absolute contradiction to the spirit of this age, to the prevailing wisdom of the day, Jesus says the path... That leads to destruction is broad. It's easy. It's where we are most inclined 
to traverse. He also says that the path, the road, the direction to life is narrow and few they be that find it. I'm not sure if I could find a truth that stands more in absolute contradiction to what we are being told today in society at large. These are the words of Jesus. This is not my interpretation. We're just reading them. So the first thing that Jesus says is beyond this life, there are two paths. One is broad and one is narrow. And they both lead to a gate. One is wide and easy to enter into. That path that leads to that gate leads to destruction. The path that leads to life is narrow and it leads to a gate that is narrow. And that is the gate that leads to life. So he is putting us on notice that you have a fork in the road, every single one of us. But he develops that thought. As we consider that fork in the road, as we consider the trajectory of our path, he says you need to know that there are many false prophets. There are many people Many ideologies, many worldly philosophies, which will distract you from the truth, which will deter you and which will deceive many. I don't think this back end of the Sermon on the Mount is that people are well acquainted with this because I'm not hearing that message in culture. But saints, it behooves us to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. Our theme this morning is a continuation of what Jesus is speaking to. And the stakes are eternity. Broad path to destruction. Deceivers. Distracting. Deterring. Pulling people away. But then... It is our own innate ability to self-deceive. To actually live our life assuming we're in. Assuming all is good. And what Jesus describes has to be, in my humble opinion, one of the most arresting passages in all of God's word. It need not be a terror for the Christian, and I'm going to do my best to balance that, but not until we take the weight of this passage and understand what Jesus is saying. Broad path, deceivers, and our own remarkable ability to deceive ourselves. So our text this morning is Matthew chapter 7, verse 
21, and we read this and following. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the very first truth that I want to point you towards this morning, call it our first sermon point, is simply this. Our remarkable ability towards self-deception. Jesus is warning people. He is warning them that the path to destruction is wide. There are many who would deceive, distract, and deter. And he says, people also have the remarkable ability to deceive themselves. This is a concept that I just, in many ways, I, I almost just want to present it this morning and then kind of continue expounding it in the weeks to come as we, as we uh, wrap up in the Sermon on the Mount. It is so profound. Jesus says that there will be many who stand before him thinking all is well. And in a moment, literally in a moment, they will discover all is not well. And that will never end. If you are not acquainted with teachings like this, I encourage you to be better acquainted to the teachings of Scripture. Because we have a tendency sometimes to take what we want and we highlight those. We all have that tendency. So one of the values, we call this expository preaching, that is preaching through a passage or through a book, is I don't have the ability to avoid what I don't want to talk about. I cannot just walk in and choose on a Sunday morning. I think I'm going to pound this because that's what I care about. I want to be faithful in opening the scriptures to us so we can see, as Paul said, the whole counsel of God. So I'd like to develop this concept in this way. It flows naturally that Jesus is Lord and Savior. We have discussed this. If we pull up the next slide, we have discussed this. Last week and the weeks before then. And here's why. I apologize. I, I skipped over a slide. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. We've identified this as a key statement in the Sermon on the Mount. This verse is like a rudder on a ship. It directs 
how we are to understand what Jesus is saying. And Jesus uses it to help us understand where he's going with all of this. We've talked about this many times. The question that Jesus detractors had on their mind was, well, is he going to uphold the law and the prophets? Let's check him out. He hasn't passed through our seminaries, so we want to know what he's going to preach. Jesus answers the question before they ask it. He says, why, yes, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I will uphold Moses. I will uphold the prophets. I will teach you the heart of God in the law of God and in the mouthpieces of God. I will do that. They were happy to hear that, but Jesus was not, and he was not finished. He continued in mid-sentence. He says, I've come to fulfill them. Far more than what you're asking. I will do far more than you ever could or your predecessors ever could. I will not only teach faithfully, I will not live only live according to, but I will bring to fulfillment that which God has revealed over the centuries. Jesus would preach the law And he would also live by the law, like the rabbis. Catch is he would live perfectly. He would never miss. He would never miss the surface level nor the heart level. But he is also the subject matter of all that Moses and the prophets spoke to. Paul put it this way, all the promises of God, they are yes and amen in Christ. So now we, I take you to our next slide, Jesus as Lord and Savior. This flows naturally. We understand this. We've talked about it. Jesus is the only way to God. He is the only way, the only path towards forgiveness and reconciliation with God. It is what we call the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ. And it follows from the very simple principle that Jesus laid down. I am the subject of the Old Testament. Jesus put it this way. This is Jesus speaking. I am the door. If anyone comes by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. I'm the way, Jesus said. He put it this way in chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The apostles understood this very clearly, and they proclaimed it very, very clearly. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by, uh, by which we must be saved. So now there's a laser beam, and the apostles are standing up and saying, Listen, we are proclaiming to you Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is not a way for you to consider as you make your choice which way you want to live. They said he is the way. Echoing what Jesus said so 
clearly. But now here's where we want to develop what we want to develop this morning. Yes, Jesus is savior. He is the way. But now we're going to extend and extrapolate what Jesus said in Matthew 5:17 when he said I've come to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus is not only savior, Jesus is judge. He is the one who is not only telling you the way, but he is the one. Don't overlook this. He is the one, he says, before whom people will stand. This is worthy of our attention. It is worthy to develop. It is worth to develop this thought because it is very clearly spoken of in Scripture. I take you to Acts chapter 17. The history of the early church. The apostolic preaching of the gospel. Let's see how the apostles themselves developed this theme of Jesus being judge. Paul is now standing before the Gentile philosophers primarily in Athens. Oh, they love to talk about philosophy, religion, trying to figure things out. But it had no consequence for them because they didn't care what you believed. They just wanted to hear what you believed. They might try to win you over to their side, but what they're really after was an engaging conversation. Paul, that wasn't his goal. You see... Virtually every city that Paul showed up in, we know this, he got beaten to a pulp. Because his message differed from those around him. He wasn't there to chew the fat, as they say, to shoot the breeze, to just talk about different ideas and to get a kind of a rise out of seeing what people believe about different things. He was actually proclaiming the truth. He was actually extending the ministry of Jesus Christ, that narrow way and that narrow gate. And he would consistently say, this is the way you've got to, you got to go his way. Which is why there was always a response. So Acts chapter 17. We won't read the entire passage. But Paul stands up and he proclaims the gospel. He proclaims the exclusivity of God himself. There is one God. He says, you know, I noticed all these temples and all these idols and all these altars that you have. They're very ornate. Congratulations. You must have spent money and time making these exquisite pieces of worship. He said, you know, I noticed that one of them, one of these altars was dedicated to the unknown God. Why? He says, well, because you're afraid you're going to miss one. So you just throw in an extra one for the ones you missed. Well, Paul was very effective. He thought to himself, well, there's my inn. You've got one there and you don't know who it belongs to. So I'm going to tell you about the one that you've missed. The one that you've missed is the one true and living 
God. There is none like him. He is the creator of all things. And he's the one to whom we will give an account. We'll pick it up in verse 30. Paul, speaking of the history of mankind, says this, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now watch this. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is for everybody. Christ has come. He suffered, was buried, he rose again. The message is going out, and now you're responsible for it. Notice what he says. Because, he ties it together, all men everywhere must come to repentance. And here's why. Because God has fixed a day, this is not nebulous, a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That matters. Remember Jesus' active and passive obedience Active obedience means that he actively kept the law so that he could passively suffer for you and for me so that we could put our faith in him because he did the work and God will judge in righteousness. Why? Because his justice will never be tarnished because Christ suffered for us because he says he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now watch this by a man whom he has appointed. Who is that? That is Christ. By virtue of the resurrection of the dead. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see a dead savior can't judge. Actually a dead savior can't do much at all. But he's not dead. He's alive. Now. What he is doing here is he is focusing his audience on this. You will stand before God Almighty. His name is Jesus. Therefore, reference what I just said. All people Everywhere must repent. He's laying it right there for them. And his rationale is this. You are going to stand before him. The judge. What are you going to do with him? Now watch the conclusion. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again. I hear you. I see you, Paul. We'll give it some consideration. Some just wrote him off immediately. Doesn't that happen today? Don't we share the gospel and people think we're crazy or they think it's ridiculous or they think it's, ready, narrow-minded? You're making me uncomfortable. Get out of my space. Why would you do that? This is the gospel. Now, Paul will ratchet up the heat when he speaks to the Thessalonian church. I want you to see this one as well. This is not a weak doctrine. This idea that Christ is the judge. My friends, it is paramount. It is central in the New Testament. 
Jesus, well, let's put it this way. God is holy. Jesus is God. God will judge sin. Now, here's what you need to know. He will judge sin in one of two ways. Your sin will be judged at the cross. Or your sin will be judged on your back on judgment day. That's the choice. It's very clear. Sin will not go unnoticed. Sin will be judged. There are two options. You pay it yourself. Or you look at the beauty of the Son of God on the cross. And you receive a free gift of eternal life. It is one of the two. That's why Evgeny prayed to this end. That the lost would know the gospel. That they would see it in us. That they would hear the truth. And they would put their faith in Christ. But now watch. This is what Paul says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 7. To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So we're talking the future, second coming. With his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those are very heavy hitting words. Christ is coming again. He's not coming in a weak fashion. And the dividing line is very, very clear. What have you done with Christ? Those who do not know God, as defined by, they do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are uncomfortable words, but look at what he says. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. My friends, I or whoever is preaching on a Sunday morning, we do not stand here because it's just fun to do. It is greatly gratifying, but there is truth that has weight to it. And this is why in Scripture, particularly the book of Acts, you will see words like plead. They pleaded with people. They exhorted people. This is not just a fun philosophy that you can pick or choose and say, well, I like it, or maybe I'll go this way. The entire focus of the New Testament is that the kingdom of God is come. Jesus has come. Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. Now, which side are you on? It's really that. It's really that simple. And so what I want to develop for us, because I think this will help us better understand the weight of what Jesus is sharing here, is Jesus is not only Savior. Jesus is judged by virtue of the majesty of his person, who he is, he is judge. And we will stand before 
him. The question will be, what did we do with him? I put this in reverse order on purpose. Sometimes it is alleged that Paul would just go off and make up his own religion and ignore what Jesus really said. I hear that a lot. Not true. So now I'm going to take you back to what Jesus said. If Matthew 7 is not explicit enough. This is John chapter 5. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, here's the balance that I talked about. The gospel is fantastically beautiful. It is fantastically uncomplicated. It is fantastically free. But there's a fork in the road. Which path are you on? No shade on you guys to my left, but I'm just going to say this path over here is wide and it leads to destruction. The path that leads to life is narrow. These are Jesus' words. So what's at stake? He says, he who believes in me, in the one who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. That's the power of the gospel. But he's passed from death to life. So here's Jesus saying, actually, contrary to everything you've ever heard in our culture, you're not okay. You're actually not. Jesus said you're dead. And you're going to pass to to life through me. But note how he continues. Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, an hour is coming. There's the precision. It's coming. There's a time coming. This is not just fuzzy talk. It's coming. A, a, a specific time is coming. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For, the, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and literally to raise the dead to life. Jesus is not merely a philosopher or a rabbi, if that has not been clear yet. And God has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus is saying, I will be the judge. It adds weight to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. You will stand before me. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, the Old Testament saints. He is the law giver. He is the law keeper. And he is the law enforcer. All wrapped up in one because he is the son of God. Finally, this is the main idea that we will leave today and continue to develop it. It deserves our attention. Perhaps the most shocking words in the Bible. I never knew you. Not I knew you, but you fell away. Or I knew you, but you didn't do well enough, so I kicked you out. I never knew you. That's a term of intimacy. That is, we were never in relation. We were never okay. And notice the direction that he says... 
He doesn't say, you didn't know me. He says, I did not know you. Saints, you can review the words that are there in plain English, originally in plain Greek. Watch. He says, many will think they're in. Many will stand before me. Not a few. Remember that this path is broad that goes to destruction. Many will stand before me. That term, Lord, Lord, that is a term of familiarity. It's knocking on the door late at night to someone you know you can do that with. It's us. It's me. What do you mean I'm not in? Friend, Jesus, it's, it's me. Based on activities. Listen, many, many times in the New Testament, we saw last week, Scripture says that Satan appears as an angel of light. Do not think the mere miraculous is a sign of truth. Remember Moses and Aaron? Remember the plagues? Step by step, evil matched it. Oh, that's nice. I'll do that too. That's not the truth. This is why Jesus upholds his word and he says, this is the truth. So there will be people who point to their amazing Christian activity. Now keep in mind, the context is he's flowing out of speaking of false prophets. There will be many people who are ministers of righteousness who claim to do many things for God. But friends, being in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. Singing in the choir doesn't make you a Christian. Being an evangelist doesn't make you a Christian. Being an Awana leader doesn't make you a Christian. All of these things are wonderful things and they should flow from a relationship with God. But I don't want anyone to step over that initial aspect of believing in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation. It is so easy to just breeze through life. We have so many things on our mind, so many things going on, so much busyness. Friend, don't make that mistake. Have you personally come to the Lord on his terms And put your faith, your confidence, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Not your church, not your pastor, not your mom and dad, not anybody else that you care to mention. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that will be the question and the only answer on that day. There was a free gift that was extended. Have you taken it? Is it yours? Is he yours? And yes, dear ones, when we make a profession of faith, when we claim the name of Christ, the life of God is now inside of us. And that is going to show up in 
our life. As we bring the Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion, we'll tie all of these things together in the next couple of weeks. But I beg of you, don't overlook this passage. Not only for yourself, but for those around you as well. And like I said, I don't want to be irresponsible and create unnecessary fear or terror. Rather, I want to present to you what God's word says, what Jesus himself says. Scripture says to examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. This is not something to take lightly, but it's also not something to obsess over. Because the clarity with which we speak of judgment in the same passages, there's clarity on the gospel. Have you believed in Jesus? One preacher of yesteryear put it this way. We are bound to face squarely the things which our Lord puts before us for our consideration. The general principle behind the teaching here is that self-deception with regard to the soul and its relationship to God is generally due to our relying upon false evidences of salvation. To put it another way, our Lord shows us what is actually possible in the experience of a man who is finally condemned before God. That's the alarming thing. He shows us that a man can go so far And yet be altogether wrong. It is certainly one of the most astounding statements that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. Christ Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. I've said it many times over the last couple of weeks. Yes, I have come across perhaps a bit sober-minded, serious. We always want to be serious when handling God's word, but there's a particular weight that comes with the passage that we're looking at these days. Let the words of Christ speak themselves. We are living for much more than just this brief and passing life. We must be convinced and persuaded, number one, that we need a Savior. Number two, that Jesus is that Savior. And we must ourselves put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. This is not something that our parents can do for us or our coach or our pastor, our Sunday school teacher. This is between us and God. So I'll just ask the question. Is the Lord Jesus Christ your Savior? Is the Lord Jesus your Savior? If you have never called on the Lord 
for his mercy and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says today is the day of your salvation. Don't put it off another day. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise. At one and the same time, we acknowledge what is at stake. We hear the words of Jesus as he inaugurated his ministry. This is the beginning pages of the New Testament. Oh Lord, I pray for all in attendance or those who would hear my voice virtually now or at another time. That we would be persuaded that Jesus is Lord. That he's the one. That we would believe in him. Trust him. Completely. Abandon our efforts to earn it ourselves. And oh Father, I pray that perhaps this passage will serve another purpose for many of us that we would stop being distracted that we wouldn't live a watered down Christian life but that we'd follow you completely and wholly that we would reflect in our own lives the gravity of what is before us and yet at the same time be filled with joy because you are good and you're merciful and you're kind. Lord, when I think of the love that was present yesterday in the Thorn Keziah's house as we gathered around Collins, as we worshiped together, as we prayed together, Oh, there's no love like yours. There's none anywhere ever. Thank you for showing us your love. Thank you for the honor of showing love to other people, of being that conduit to others. Oh, Lord, open our eyes to see. Help us indeed to love well. To be considerate of others. To be more mindful of them than our own selves. And Lord, on that flip side of the same coin that we've looked at this morning. Fill us with assurance and joy. As your people. Known by you through faith in Christ. Build us up in our most holy faith. All of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.